0: Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing, sir?
1: Hey, it's great to uh, be talking with you. It's a little bit rainy here, but it's always good to hang out with you and make myself laugh.
0: Yeah, make yourself laugh. He just made a joke about manifestos what would you say? Something
1: about manifest? Oh, I'll yeah. kill the I, joke. I can, can fix the the manifesto by taking out two letters and get manifest. <laughs> See, Derek
0: thought that was hilarious. He was so tickled by that. Derek's red in the face right now. He's so tickled. But anyway, speaking of manifestos, that's actually something we want to spend a little bit of time talking about right now. Is. Uh, I don't even know the proper title of this, but I think it's what is it, Radical Orthodoxy? Right, the radical orthodoxy. Manifesto. And this is a manifesto. Um, I don't know where to begin with this thing because I don't I, I don't know what it's trying to say. But the the reason we want to talk about it is because it's gaining some sort of buzz in the LDS world. The Trib just posted a thing about it today, or at least mentioned it in passing today. It has some pretty high-profile names as signatories, including Terrell and Fiona Givens, a couple of people that Derek and I know personally or respect, and it just has been causing a stir with, I, I guess it's words, but I personally cannot see why because I don't know that it says anything. We can link to the manifesto if you guys want to read along in the show notes. This manifesto to me just basically seemed to say, you can do whatever you want as long as the brethren still approve of it or co sign it. And it just said it in really pretty big words. Like it was under, like the whole thing was like, Ten paragraphs written under the pretense of some kind of intellectual forward thinking when, in reality, it didn't seem to break a lot of ground. I don't know. Do you have a summary of this thing you want to give before we talk about it, Derek? Well, they're trying
1: to carve out a middle path
0: between... Between some kind of obstinate... I think their words they use is obstinate fundamentalism and excessive progressivism. Those right. are the words I remember.
1: And... Like they're like, ooh, we have to 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 thread the needle between this very narrow strait between the radical left and the radical right. Okay, that's not a that's a wide ocean. That's there's a very a, wide there's, ocean. There is there's a lot of room to play in that, and they they probably would consider me on the left. I consider myself a centrist. I'm just following the savior, right? That's that's my label, but they would see me as a leftist because I actually believe in Christ's me- message of afflicting the comfortable right and so there's a couple of things i want to point out one is that their goal i want to ask what what their incentive is what do they what do they have to gain exactly like
0: because it really just looks like they're bored like that's how this whole thing read is like oh my gosh it's such a time of uh political instability and so much radicalism on both the left and the right we better say something and like they yeah. feel like their their opinion is so important that they just got to say something that ultimately says nothing. So I don't know what right. they had to gain from this other than a feeling of self importance.
1: Yeah, well, they want to signal their loyalty. I they they know people are going to read this and as they well want to signal their yeah. loyalty
0: as well as some kind of virtue for, as you said, threading a very wide needle. If that's even the right, right term.
1: And I, in theory, like this idea of a of a negotiated middle path of like you know, avoiding extremes and and actually taking into stuff account. But my problem with their middle path is that it excludes from the beginning LGBTQ voices. It's one of the few things they actually name. Like the whole document is very
0: unspecific. Like you said, it's a wide ocean of Mm -hmm. things that they could be talking about. But in the few instances where there are specific, you can clearly deduce they are trying to exclude LGBTQ folks. And that's, Probably the biggest thing I took issue with or one of the biggest things I took issue with in this whole document is as right. vague as the whole thing is, where you chose to be specific was your exclusion of the LGBTQ community.
1: And what's interesting is they never explicitly said where they differ from the right. They they like where where's the anti-Trumpism? Where's the anti-racism? Where's all the stuff that it, that distinguishes them from the fundamentalist, I'm not talking about the polygamists, but you know what I mean. Like Desnat and it, them. Yes. Yeah. They don't They don't say anything that, that they That Desnat would disagree with. Because they would also agree that the prophets can be wrong sometimes as individuals, right? Like, they'll probably say, well, Oaks was wrong one time with the Black Lives Matter. They do that. They pick and choose on the right. <laughs> that
0: was the other thing. Like, <laughs> Oaks
1: said things
0: that actually upset people on... <laughs> Oaks actually upset racists more than this manifesto did. Yeah. Like, he was more specific than this manifesto was.
1: Yeah. And so things like anti racism aren't baked into the manifesto from the beginning. So it no. will never, never, never get there. Right. Right. And so I want to bring out this analysis. See, part of what I don't want to do right now is go into a full rebuttal of their stuff because it'll just bring out their. Sense of pride of oh look we're getting attacked by the left and the right which means we're we're on the Lord's side and we love being a you know a lot of Latter Day Saints have this persecution complex and that really gets in the way of careful thinking careful and responsible thinking but anyway so instead of like giving them something that they can feel good about I'm going to talk about this choir analogy because you and I James are both singers and we love to sing and we love to sing in groups. And I wanna think about how would you, look at their attitude, their exclusive attitude, their know-it-all attitude. They're like, you can play within a very narrow range of stuff, attitude, and it all has to devolve back to like unquestioning loyalty to what the brethren say as a matter of opinion. Not as a matter of revelation from God, but just as whatever the brethren say today, that's what we're. So here's my, what I'm gonna do is ask you as a singer how would you feel if you were in a choir with people who had that attitude and said well nope you can't sing your part you need to leave the room our tent pole ness isn't big enough to hold your people how would you feel if they wouldn't let you sing if they wouldn't let you breathe if they choked you and said nope this is not this is outside the bounds of radical orthodoxy you're not welcome here
0: i mean i'd leave the choir because that choir is going to suck it's going to sound poor
1: oh yeah well that's true. And yeah, that's exactly what like it is. What it's choir not gonna...
0: excludes necessary voices? What choir excludes voices right. that you need?
1: That's, that's, but that's exactly what they're doing. Like they are explicit about anyone who's like, even partly pro LGBT in terms of same gender ceilings or tra- um, celebrating transition, like all these things, like, nope, you're just completely off. That's not even a negotiable for them and there's they're claiming to be a middle path and they're pretending to be open-minded but on the one issue well on the the LGBT issue is one of the most prominent ones that need attention right now there are others mm-hmm. as well of course it's the highest profile one but in terms of what's actually controverted in the church today that's one of our, that's like our biggest thing if you get our, if you say you can't even have the conversation about the biggest or one of the biggest issues of our time then What's the point in being a group of intellectuals writing a manifesto? But anyway, back to my choir analogy. I'd love to, to picture this as a four-part chorus where the scriptures are the base, right? Both B-A-S-S and B-A-S-E, right? Because you know I'm all about that base. That was actually clever. <laughs> you're allowed to laugh at that it was a clever joke <laughs> so I'm all about that base but my point is okay so the, the the base part is the foundation from which all the harmonies above are are a done relative to right and then I'm gonna have the brethren the prophets and apostles be the sopranos because they're the most obvious voice to a casual listener like that's the you know the the highest and loudest and most prominent voice not the not the most important not the most important I mean, sopranos think they're the most important, but <laughs> but uh, and then there's the tenors and altos in the big in the middle that have all the juicy harmonies that have fill in the rest of the stuff that make the whole harmonic progression gorgeous and it makes it shimmer with beauty. And we were talking about a little, little bit about dissonances earlier, and my view is that dissonance doesn't mean sounds bad; it means sounds in tension and, and needs resolution. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a dissonant interval can, can pierce the whole room with a vibrant spark, and that's different than singing an interval out of tune, that's ugly. But dissonance isn't ugly, it is just something that is a tension in need of resolution. So these people here, the manifesto people are saying, nope, we all gotta sing soprano with the brethren. We all have to sing unison. There's no room for musicality. There's no room for a gorgeous full choir with all the parts there. They're saying, "Nope, we're going to exclude these people and play around with a very very within a very limited narrow boundaries."
0: Even as they say that there's room for a lot of conversation and all this other
1: stuff. Right, right. It's it's tough. And so another piece of my analogy is one, there's times where in many especially polyphonic compositions where each section has a rest they take turns like sometimes there's a rest for the bases and sometimes there's a rest for the sopranos i agree there's sometimes where certain parts need to take a rest so that the others can shine through and right now anyone there's a lot of people who need to take a rest so that women can speak there's mm-hmm. a lot of people who need to take a rest so that people of color can speak or so that lgbtq folks can speak the people that are most marginalized in the choir the altos and the sup- and the tenors not very many people want to sing those parts but those are necessary they're absolutely necessary it's like first corinthians 12 what the body of christ can't function if it doesn't have all of its parts like the eye can't say to the foot i don't ha- i don't have any need for you but this is exactly what these manifesto people are saying is like we don't need the lgbt voices and so that's Really the tough. And that means that we who are LGBTQ need to keep our voice. We need to have our breath. We need to come in confidently. We need to come in when it's it's our part to sing. we got to sing our part. And then there's this concept of stagger breathing where you can have a single section hold a note continuously because people will, will drop out one at a time when they need a breath and then gradually come back in. And you can have this beautiful wall of sound that can literally last indefinitely long. And that's what we have to do in the social justice world is, yes, you need to have self-care, but we as a people will not stop. We will not stop until our voice is heard. Well, first of all,
0: I, I agree with your use of that analogy, and I agree with how you feel about the manifesto in that it's, even though it is performing under the guise of something that is inclusive of all kinds of thinkers and ideas and people, it was explicit in its exclusion of the LGBTQ community, and it did like it it basically embraced some form of some form of fundamentalism under the guise of this intelligent forward thinking thing like i don't i don't know like anytime i see somebody put out a manifesto i'm just like this is an extremely pretentious way of telling people what you believe like why do you need this and especially if you're going to say something that isn't particularly new it's not groundbreaking It's not bold. Like, one of the things they said in their manifesto is that radical orthodoxy is radical because it promotes bold exploration beyond that, which is familiar. Is it bold, though? Is it really rejecting the obstinateness of fundamentalism if it's choosing to sustain homophobic policy that's already, at best, on very shaky doctrinal footing? And supposing that we have to defer to the brethren on our most significant social matters, even as our recent past has already garnered plenty of evidence of the Brethren either moving too slow or getting things wrong. And that's one of the things they say in their manifesto is just that, you know, this, these ideas that the Brethren are on the wrong side of history or that they're performing too slow is not something that we really espouse or something that we want to communicate. We want to communicate a fierce fidelity to the Brethren. But you and I, Derek, people like us, we don't have that luxury. It's no coincidence that most of the people who are signatories of that document are straight white cis men. Like, no coincidence at all, because they don't have a lot to lose by standing in that particular brand of fundamentalism. We don't have the luxury of believing that the brethren are always right, because their mistakes or their opinions, their policies have literally affected people like us and still affect people like us. Like, to this day, I'm still feeling the effects of the priesthood ban 126 years after it was first instituted, 42, 43 years after it ended. You know, I'm still feeling those effects. I go to church on Sunday, or at least when I go back to church on Sunday, when this pandemic business is over, I'm going to go to church on Sunday, look around me and realize I'm the only black face or one of like two or three at most. That is not a space I want to be in on purpose. And that is certainly not an accident in this church. So I'm not going to, I don't feel comfortable saying something like or proclaiming a fierce fidelity or loyalty to the prophet and their policies and their ideas and their teachings when such things have literally harmed people like us. That doesn't mean I don't sustain the brethren. I do very much sustain the brethren. I have a very strong testimony of the church, of the gospel, and even that the
1: prophets are led by God, but that doesn't mean I agree with everything they do. It's tough because they seem to broadcast more fidelity to the brethren than they do to Christ. I know they they put a little throwaway tag in there about they're, they're loyal to Christ. They're not at all loyal to the way Christ did his ministry or how Jesus was a champion of the marginalized. They, they're they trying to exclude exactly where Christ is on the move the most in our church.
0: Who, ironically, is a radical and was a radical in that way.
1: Right. And it's it's tough. And, you know, they even put the, the law of chastity business before Christ. I saw in their, that. In their paragraph, they, they talk about Christ. They talk about chastity, and then they get around to talking about Christ. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that the law of chastity has become a dog whistle. Like I would have no problem with the law of chastity if people in their head thought of it in a way that was uniform for all people. Mm -hmm. That queer people and queer relationships are just as holy and just as chaste on the same terms as straight. I would have no problem with people talking about the law of chastity, but the way of the law of chastity is used a way of prettifying homophobia then just make it sound like it's supported by god. Right. Right. And that's the real problem with what they're doing. The reality of the proclamation is that it's an outline. It is not comprehensive at all. And I think when people want to rally around the the proclamation as a tent pole, there's a problem because it's there's so many details that aren't fleshed out around divorce, around people with no kids, around people who don't have the opportunity for marriage, especially, of course, LGBT people. But there's just so many things that it doesn't actually give you any new insider wisdom or breakthrough about. There is that one line that says death, disability, or other circumstances can necessitate individual adaptation, but other than that, it it doesn't explicitly talk about divorce or, or single people or who are all these other things not just the homos it's just a really brief outline of some values that i think if you play out those values you could definitely include lgbtq people on those same values certainly so like in that same paragraph
0: where they address or in the paragraph after they talk about you know the law of chastity that dog whistle for their homophobia. In one paragraph, they use both the words "radical" and "revolutionary," but with a caveat of being under the tutelage of the modern prophets. Which I just—I snickered at it. If I'm being that's honest, that's like
1: Henry Ford saying, "You can have any color of car you want as long as it's black." I'm not under the
0: impression that a social or spiritual revolution of any kind is going to occur on the watch of straight old white dudes who lead a church that has a deep commitment to white supremacy, homophobia, and patriarchy. Like, I don't think that particular fountain is going to produce good water, to borrow a term from, you know, today's Come Follow Me. That is going to require some outside intervention. Again, this isn't to slide on the brethren, but just to defer or to say that any kind of radical or revolutionary things that we do to pursue social progress has to be done under their tutelage is just... I mean, it's dangerous, like if we're being honest, like it's very dangerous. Like there are very patriarchal, racist and homophobic undertones to that. You can't allow or y- you can't suppose that these same people who are most affected by these decisions
1: need to listen to people that don't bear the cost for them. And the sad thing is, apparently they worked on this for a year. I mean, <laughs> a whole year like I could and work. That on... <laughs> is what you came up with. Yeah, that is amazing. And they didn't they didn't invite me to be on the committee. So the timing, like,
0: they were working on this for a year. Like, that makes the timing a little less suspicious. I'm like, did they release this as soon as it was done? Or did they deliberately release it at this time? When the more radical voices and various ideologies seem to be getting louder, all this manifesto seems to be saying is that we don't want to pick a side. Jesus picked sides. And it was always on the side of the oppressed. And then when you write a manifesto that is deliberately oppressive to members of you know the lgbtq community or you are trying to claim neutrality both of those things martin luther king said puts you on the side of the oppressor that is what they accomplished here they put themselves albeit in more flowery flowery language on the side of the oppressor and they do it without being very specific about those things they, that they reject they don't say or define what excess progressivism is they don't define or well they do what.
1: they say anything that's like actually about the full humanity of lgbtqs that's on their list of excess like that's probably the only thing that they really point out as they don't even say i i actually think that some of them would be open to the ordination of women because that's not anywhere in any of those three tent poles right basically
0: what i read into this is it's the preferred type of quote unquote cafeteria Mormonism that most members already practiced.
1: They do mention Christ, but it's interesting that they use Christ as a tool. Right? They're like as, they used Christ as a you know disciplinarian of or of, of a of a this thing. Like Christ is our attack dog. You better obey the brethren, or Christ is going to come get you. Right? Mm-hmm. We should authorize the brethren because they point to Christ, and it's not that we authorize the brethren because Christ points to them. I think so many people in our culture think that Christ points to the prophets and says, now you listen to them. And it's actually the other way around. If you look at prophets anywhere in the scriptures, they're all about turning away from them and saying, look, you gotta look through me and go, go to the prophet I and mean, go through the prophet, turn back to the Lord. I really think that the underlying motivation for this is they wanted to feel better about themselves. They wanted to feel like they're loyal that they're obedient to the brethren, and they're not like those people, meaning the radical, ironically, the radical right, Mm. or the radical left, but I think think they really wanna be like, we don't wanna be like those Desnat people. Like we're open-minded, but within the approved boundaries. Mm but we're we're open-minded and we're willing to, to be flexible on some things. That's why I think I made my comment about women's ordination because there's nothing within their tent poles that would preclude it, even though the brethren aren't there yet. That's, I think, what they mean by openness. Cool. So before we
0: move on to the come follow me, just want to remind you guys that we're a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts and culture. Find out more at DialogueJournal.com slash podcast network. That's DialogueJournal.com slash podcast network. So we're in Moroni chapters seven through nine. This is one of the most popular sermons in the entire Book of Mormon and it's very doctrine rich, but something I just can't help but considering is the time in which Mormon and Moroni were living in at the time that this sermon was written. And the fact that Moroni is now including it in his record as like Moroni is including it in his record as his people are becoming extinct. And Mormon preached this sermon at a time of spiritual decay in his society. It makes me wonder the kind and the brand of gratitude, hope, and faith that these two men had at such a time that they were able to give such impactful and powerful sermons on this stuff. Like It really honestly reminds me of the kinds of sermons and the kinds of words that were written in the time at the height of the Civil Rights Movement when you saw a clear... You know, there was clearly violence against these people, but there were so many messages of hope and messages of gratitude. And uh, I don't know that I will ever fully understand those. I don't know if I will ever fully understand what was going on in the hearts and minds of Mormon and Moroni that these got included but, you know, I'm nonetheless grateful, and I just wanted to bring that out or at least make that context known before we go ahead and read these verses. They were talking about things like faith, hope, and charity, the, you know, feeling the Spirit of the Lord at a time where such things were very difficult or should have been very difficult.
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's this really interesting effect that they were at a such, they're in such a difficult part in their, part of their life journey. So many awful things happen around them that it causes them to refine their priorities and it really distills out what's really important. And so they were up against a wall and the remaining space on the plates they had left. This is what they decided to talk about.
0: I really like these uh, verses in Moroni chapter seven, verses 13 through 16 about how the spirit feels or how to learn how the spirit feels. You got any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. This is in verse 13 of chapter 7. We've got that which is of God inviteth and enticeth to do good continually. Wherefore, everything which inviteth and enticeth to do good and to love God and to serve him is inspired of God. Now, let's look at the fruits of non-affirming theology. It denies people their full dignity their full humanity their full ability to flow in the world to accomplish anything good but let's look at the fruits of lgbt affirming theology Mm. it allows people to be their full selves to bring every one of god's gifts that they have to the table full lgbt acceptance is of god it bring makes people their best selves it means it doesn't force them to lie, force them to hide or force them to be someone they're not or force them to spend energy thinking and pretending to be like it's just a mess.
0: Considering the destructive consequences of harmful things like slavery and perhaps considering harmful con- consequences of things like homophobia, racism, patriarchy, that is what caused progress in the Christian church. We were able to appeal to the conscience of people and look at the fruits of our theology. We were able to look at the fruits of slavery, the fruits of patriarchy, the fruits of homophobia, and many churches have already made the decision, oh, this is bearing bad fruit. We should probably look at this with a new lens. We should probably look at this with new eyes, with queer eyes, and then move forward from there. That is how Christian theology has evolved in the past.
1: Yeah, and it's, I don't know if you know Tony Evans. He's a black preacher, in, uh, I think, in Dallas. I heard a sermon by him about racism and the samaritan woman and i'm not going to go through the whole thing of what he said but he basically said jesus came here and fixed racism in two minutes tony evans said people think it takes hundreds and hundreds of years to fix racism but all it takes was just like two minutes if you have the right reframing you boom you really understand it and obviously there's a lot of work that goes into undoing some of these things but there's also an insight that can happen really quickly i think if straight people just took half a second and thought about what the implications would be for them if what was done to us was done to them they'd repent in like half a second and that's what i'm what's really sort of problematic about the manifesto is the people on that list the names that i recognize I wouldn't say any of them are stupid. They're all intellectually capable people. Doesn't mean they're right. Doesn't mean they're good. But they're not stupid people. It's not like the LGBT stuff is surprised them out of nowhere. They're without excuse. They have enough of the rationale. But the problem is, so many of them, like Terrell Givens, have made their entire identity and worldview vulnerable to the inclusion of LGBT people. What I mean is he will he's built an entire system that will fall apart if my people have what his people have. Mm. And he did that. He chose to set it up so that, th- that the only way we can win is if he fails in his system, in his system of theology.
0: Turning basic human rights into a zero sum
1: game. And it's not about being smart and it's also not about how much you know it's about where your heart is. And I think that's exactly what this is trying to teach us here. It's all about charity. It's all about love. Like, let's look at this in verse seven, verse eight of chapter seven. For behold, if a man being evil giveth a gift, he he doeth it grudgingly, wherefore it is counted unto him the same as if he had retained the gift. Hmm. A lot of people think, oh, if I just check off the box, then I get credit for it. No. You can have all the doctrine right. You can have all the truth right. You can have all the facts right. But if you're not loving, you don't get any credit. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what this is teaching. If you give a gift, but your heart isn't in the right place, it it doesn't. It counts as if you have have kept it back. It's the same thing with the doctrine. That's I think what they're doing with this, this manifesto is they they now they did have a throwaway tagline about charity and love, right? But they didn't embody it into the text. No, they did not. Because any like half a second of charity, you would you would switch over to our side mm-hmm. on any of these issues around race, LGBT, women. but anyway, that's what it teaches in First Corinthians thirteen. You could have all prophecy, all knowledge, you could give your body to be sacrificed as as a martyr. But if you don't have love, agape, charity in the King James version. If you don't have love, you don't get any credit. It doesn't mm-hmm. do anyone any good. And all of your check boxes will get unchecked.
0: It's very much, uh, I think a lot about this particular theme when it comes to activism. I don't know if you remember this just a couple of months ago or a few months ago, several months ago, when it was Blackout Tuesday and a bunch of people who never said anything about Black Lives Mattering blacked out their profile pictures on social media. Mm-hmm. And then many of them, I did not hear say anything again. You know, in the months since then, like not when anything happened with Breonna Taylor, not when anything happened with Elijah McClain, not when anything happened or when things continued to not happen for civil rights in America for black folks. I think a lot about the kind of motivations that people have of doing stuff like that manifesto, of doing things like social media slacktivism or just any particular brand of what is supposed to be. And enlightening and charitable and otherwise uplifting activity for the benefit of other people you see there's different kinds of motivations that people have for doing stuff like this like some people are operating out of fear of getting punished or out of fear of getting socially ostracized some people want to be popular some people want to be seen as woke some people are doing it out of a sense of duty maybe which is you know better And some people are doing it uh, for the right reasons. They're participating out of genuine charity. And those are the people that I trust. It's not these folks who are trying to make themselves feel better. It's not these people that are trying to fit in. I care about people who want the same thing for me that they want for themselves. Uh, Yesterday, I had the opportunity to listen to Dr. Willie James Jennings. He's a professor at Yale and a former professor at Duke. He was actually speaking at BYU for this workshop, this faculty workshop I got to crash. And I remember he was talking about a non-black professor who was an expert on a particular civil rights leader. And he described the difference between listening to that person talk about that civil rights leader's ideology and listening to a black person talk about that same civil rights leader ideology. There was a noticeable noticeable difference between the non-black professors commitment to the civil rights leader and the black professors commitment to what the civil rights leader stood for. Like some people just want to know a bunch of stuff or just wanna be experts, you know, to suit their own fancies but other people are actually passionate about this work that is embodied by the people that they study. It's not hard to tell people's true motivations in this context, and it wasn't difficult to derive the motivations of the people who wrote that manifesto. It wasn't charity. It was very much right. something that they did for themselves to make themselves feel better, as you said.
1: That's why I love how... So herein, Mormon ends up quoting Paul here. So you've got in chapter 7, verse 45... You've almost got a verbatim quote from the King James Version of Paul's uh, letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13. This is where it says, "'And charity suffereth long, and is kind, "'and envieth not, not puffed up, not easily provoked.'" All these other things. And I love it where it says that, uh, that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I just love that. And that's the whole point of charity never fails. People say, well, Derek, how do you know you're gonna win? I'm like, duh charity never faileth like i'm on the side Mm -hmm. of love and christ's on that side too i mean like there's no way that i can't eventually prevail Mm -hmm. we're gonna we're gonna have it we're gonna have real we're gonna we're gonna get there right Mm charity is the pure love of christ verse 47 everything else fails but love does not i don't i actually don't like the word charity because it hasn't I don't have a problem with the word charity, but I think a lot of people just think, oh, it means like giving poor people a handout, but it's a much richer and deeper word that just got really narrowed in its scope through usage. And this gets back to this car analogy. A lot of people, especially, I hate to generalize, but straight white men are socialized too. Notice how I said are socialized too. So It's not something like biologically about them, but straight white men are socialized to think, all of their thoughts are like impressive babies, right? You know what I mean. You know exactly what I mean, right? I know exactly what you mean, right? Like this is the whole Trump thing. I hate to say that, but he, he just gets an idea in his tummy, and it ends up on Twitter within three seconds without any reflection. And there's this idea that that a lot of st- straight white men are socialized to think that that their mediocrity is somehow special, and like any one of their thoughts is deserves to be heard. <laughs> right right and and i, I want to say very clearly that just because you have a thought doesn't mean it needs to be spoken <laughs> and just because it's true so many of these these people they'll say something problematic and then someone will will hold them accountable and they'll say but what i said was true and I'm, and my point is well maybe it is or it isn't but there's certain things that just because it's true you don't get to say them this is why i hate twitter right here
0: just because or something is like true. That.
1: And let me give you, this is one of my most important teachings that I'm ever gonna get, say today. <laughs> today. I wanna, I wanna completely debunk this idea that just because something is true, you should say it. Imagine, and this is a horrible analogy, but imagine that I I have a lot of friends in the ward who have like very young kids, like three or four year old kids, five or six year old kids. Imag- what would happen if Like we were at some event and a kid ran across, one of their kids ran across the street and got run over by a car. And then this very distraught, very panicky, very like world come apart parent screaming, crying with the kid comes up to me carrying their dead kid. And I say, and they they tell me, Derek, my kid just got run over by a car. What if I say it wasn't my car? which is a 100% true statement. I'm like, it wasn't my car. That is, that's, that's, that's satanic. That's, that's awful. Like, just because something is true doesn't mean that it's loving, or charitable, or even humane. Yeah. Maybe you made a point here and there. Maybe what you said here is true, but you missed the point, and you don't have a right to say things, even if they're true to certain people at certain times. And that's where this whole piece of charity comes in, right? If you have the truth but you don't have charity, you don't have the truth mm-hmm. because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And God is love and God is light. Like if you missed the whole thing to get one piece right, you didn't get that piece right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so much of the focus that's going into these, to the manifesto people is like, we've got all this all this other stuff right and so we're, that's that's where so I'm we get leave to us. say
0: this stuff. So we get to say the homophobia. Yeah, yeah. It's ridiculous. I mean,
1: there's just this extreme entitlement, and there's nothing wrong with straight white men. I I'm I'm in love with a whole bunch of straight white men, but Can confirm. <laughs> but I, like I There's nothing wrong with them, like biologically or whatever. It's straight white men are socialized to feel entitled, and I, I as a white man, I'm I'm socialized to feel entitled as well. Like I'm not exempt from that but I think there's something that needs to be named of, if you feel entitled to say whatever you want to say, no matter whether it's loving or not, without regard for the impact on the other person, you might not be ready to be a prophet. Hmm.
0: That's a word, man. All right. So that's Moroni 7. Do you want to say anything? Like the only other thing I will want to say in the time that we have left is in Moroni 9. Do you have anything you want to say in 8 before we move on?
1: Yeah, let me just say this. I think I can make this point really quickly. It has to do with infant baptism. And there's an interesting detail that if you baptize an infant, that's an abomination, right? Verse 20, and he that saith that little children need baptism denieth the mercies of Christ. And let's let's unpack that a little bit of because right now based on what's been revealed we don't know exactly what the path of children who die before eight will look like at this point if if a child dies before eight they don't get baptized they didn't get baptized in life and we don't do any temple work for them after their death So we don't know what their path looks like. I'm absolutely convinced that God of justice will not deprive them of all the blessings that would be available to anyone based on the fact that they died before they were eight. Now, what does this mean though? It means that there are different plans of salvation. There have to be. Like the way an eight-year-old is exalted is not going to be the same way that a straight married adult with kids is going to be exalted there's just no way there are more there are many plans of salvation there are many paths and we only have some of those paths revealed but the cool thing is if you look at the fulcrum the centerpiece of mormon's argument here verse 15 for awful is the wickedness to suppose that god saveth one child because of baptism and the other must perish because he hath no baptism. This is the idea that, oh, if we don't baptize our infants, they're gonna die because baptism is necessary for salvation, which some denominations do teach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The Calvinists, the, the, the Catholics. So justice and equality is the centerpiece, the fulcrum of Mormon's argument here. It's wickedness to think that God will save one child because they got baptized as an infant and then somehow the other one's like, whoops, you're out of luck I mean that's not what God is like verse 18 for I know that God is not a partial God isn't that amazing that the 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 fulcrum of this is on God's impartiality and so people say well people have said that well if we let gays get married and sealed then they're gonna have a separate but equal path to whatever I mean no different plans come into being because of God's impartiality that's exactly what we see here with with uh, children who die before the age of eight, before the age of accountability. What is your reaction to that?
0: Well, first of all, I just want to point out how Mormon came to this knowledge. There was, dip- there was disputations among the people mm-hmm. about this kind of stuff. So Mormon went and inquired of the Lord. We've had this conversation before about what happens when people dispute among doctrine, and we often neglect that this revelation – is, well, this is a result of personal revelation. Like people were inquiring about this stuff, and Mormon was able to get some personal revelation. But I also just like how you've, uh, you know, to get back to what you just asked, I, I like that you pointed out the impartiality of God, in that uh, there's always going to be a plan for people whose lives or whose circumstances don't fit the norm in a way that allows them to experience salvation or partake of the ordinances the way that other people are able to. We have, in addition to this here, a lot of evidence that God makes a way possible for people in different circumstances to partake of his gospel. Even some of the healings that Christ performed or that his apostles performed were so that people were able to experience God like everybody else. You know, Mm -hmm. that's just... That has always been the way that the Saviors worked. Five loaves and two fishes. Right. You know, yeah. just talked about this one or two weeks ago. And I have been having this conversation with myself ever since. I love that one of the most profound stories or one of the most popular miracles of Jesus Christ is how he basically took what people had, which was not enough to feed 5,000 people. He basically was like, hey, I need to feed 5,000 people. What y'all got? Oh, two fishes, five loaves. I can make that work. Like this is the Christ we worship. This is a Christ who makes things work. He looks at where you are, what you have available to you, and he makes a path for you to obtain salvation. That is the economy of God. And I just like that. That's being reaffirmed here with children and baptism. And it even goes to far, goes as far as to not just talk about uh, children, but they that are without the law. Verse 22 Little children are alive in Christ, and also all they that are without the law. For the power of redemption cometh on all of them that have no law. Wherefore, he that is not condemned, or he that is under no condemnation, cannot repent. And unto such baptism availeth nothing. That is further evidence that God is looking for a way to bless everybody, regardless of their circumstances. People that didn't have an opportunity to partake of the gospel in this life, they're going to have an opportunity Mm -hmm. in the next life. Mm -hmm. We don't know. Um, Just to get back to your original point, we don't necessarily know how things are going to work for LGBTQ folks in this life. We don't know how things are going to work exactly for people who died without the law. All we do know is that we have a responsibility to do people's work on this side of the veil in the temple so that they can have it. We don't know the mechanics, all the mechanics of that. We just know that that is our responsibility. That's the part that we have Mm -hmm. to handle, Mm -hmm. and God's going to take care of the rest. We have several witnesses Of God making a way for people to partake of His goodness, in spite of their circumstances.
1: Right, exactly. And people wonder, well, how do you know that? People, there's a lot of people that I have this superstitious, almost superstitious approach to the ordinances. Like, oh, you just got to do these ordinances, and then that's the whole thing. And if you don't do them, you're like, oh, you're going to be whatever. But really, people say, well, what if you're not sealed to anyone? Like, what if you don't get married? Like, I don't worry about that because you know. That's not what Jesus worried about. And here's the thing is, how do you know that, that these the, eight, the kids who die before eight have, are gonna have a, a chance? It's because of the character of God. It's because God is the one who reverses things. And the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. If there's anyone who's last, it's probably someone who dies without a chance, a, a full chance at life, and a full chance at the ordinances, and a full chance at family. I don't know what that's going to look like. And we do that too often in the church of just like delaying it. Oh, we'll figure it out later. So that's not what I want to sound like. I don't want to sound like, oh, it doesn't matter. We'll figure it out later because we could get revelation if we we as a people needed to know this and we took it to the Lord and said, we've got to have that answer. We would have more answers. That's kind of where I want to leave this is just thinking about the character of God and we don't know. And that's the other, th- I think I've said this already a couple of times, the thing with the proclamation is that it doesn't detail, it doesn't spell out the exceptions in detail, mm-hmm. right? And people wanna latch on to this proclamation as it's, so it's some magic breakthrough. Like, no, it doesn't even speak to LGBTQ people in the second person and say, you, I know, I I know you, I see you, you're gay, here's what you should do. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that anyway. It doesn't say, I know you're gay and you should be celibate. It doesn't say, I know you're gay and you should try to become straight. It doesn't say what gay people should do. It just says what gay people shouldn't do the way most people read it is no gay marriage and no gay sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not a breakthrough. That's not a revelation. <laughs> that doesn't help us what we should do like that is why i think it's so disingenuous when when people go to the proclamation as their first stop for answers around lgbt it doesn't even mention lgbt people by right. name right it doesn't even admit the fact that yeah i know there's people who uh, experience gender dysphoria or experience gender fluidity or experience um falling in love with someone that, quote, they're not supposed to. Like, it doesn't even acknowledge that and then address it. So no one should ever look to the proclamation as their first stop for getting answers about LGBTs. My Mm -hmm. first stop for getting answers about LGBTs, oh, I don't even have a first stop. But but I love this idea that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone in Psalm 118, verse 22. Mm -hmm. Right? We're rejected right now just like Christ was crucified, but then there was a resurrection.
0: I think a couple of times on this podcast, I've spoken a lot about boundaries when it comes to this kind of work that we're doing. And I want to make, like, I just want to make sure that those of us who are engaged in this work are taking care of ourselves, you know, preserving our emotional energy and certainly not expending it where it's not going to be appreciated, which is, you know, something you alluded to when you talked about why you won't talk to the folks that wrote this manifesto. I remember particularly after the news of uh, Ahmad Arbery's death and the Breonna Taylor verdict, I felt a lot of uh, despair. The morning after the verdict was, I, uh, I was invited on a uh, Utah radio show to share feelings about the verdict with some community leaders and activists, one of the leaders of the Black Lives Matter chapter in Salt Lake, and we were just all talking about our response and our feelings about the Breonna Taylor verdict. And they were very similar. My particular feelings were very similar to what Mormon has expressed here in Moroni chapter 9. And, you know, just listen to how sad this sounds. This is Mormon speaking. Behold, I'm laboring with them continually. And when I speak the word of God with sharpness, they tremble and anger against me. And when I use no sharpness, they harden their hearts against it. Wherefore I fear lest the spirit of the Lord have ceased striving with them for so exceedingly do they anger that it seemeth me that they have no fear of death and they have lost their love one towards another and they thirst after blood and revenge continually. This is sad, man. Like imagine dedicating, (laughs) like how do you dedicate your life to your people's salvation and then near the end of your life, you got to watch them slaughter each other into oblivion and there's nothing you can do about it. You feel like your work was for nothing and it would be natural to feel anything you do has no point. The phrase, uh, quote, lost their love is especially depressing as we literally just read about the power of charity and how we're literally nothing without it, especially considering how vital such a thing is in the work of salvation, in the work of ministry, in the work of uh, worship. People losing their love is basically a guaranteed game over. Like that's where Mormon Mm -hmm. is at this point. And then we get to verse six. And now, my beloved son, notwithstanding their hardness, let us labor diligently. For if we should cease to labor, we should be brought under condemnation. For we have a labor to perform whilst in this tabernacle of clay, that we may conquer the enemy of all righteousness and rest our souls in the kingdom of God. Mormon is still somehow committed to working and he's telling his son to be committed to working too because the work they're doing is about more than just saving the souls of their brethren it's also about saving their own souls it's also about becoming more christ-like themselves during this radio show shortly after i concluded my thoughts which was mostly a lot of heavy stuff a lot of negativity a lot of hopelessness Mm -hmm. my mom was also on the show she also got invited because you know of her status at um You know, as a professor at UVU there, and then when she was given the microphone, I was surprised at what my mother had to say because she's been about this life. She was, she came of age at the height of the civil rights movement. She was one of the first children that was integrated into white schools via busing when she was in elementary school. She knows this life. And then she went and she spoke in the same spirit as Mormon did here in verse 6. I don't remember exactly what she said, but she basically said that this work that we're doing still matters. We have more hope than I think Mormon Mormon did here. But she said that what we do still matters. That we don't get to wash our hands of what needs to be done in this country. We, at the end of the day, as members of marginalized groups... Even though it's not on us right now to change everything, we have to at least point to the changes. We have to at least lead people. We can't make people change. We can't make people drink the water, but we still have a responsibility to point. We still have a responsibility to lead. We still have something to do. Our work is not done. It is not hopeless. We can actually make progress, and that doesn't happen without us pointing the way to the promised land. Just because people don't seem to follow us doesn't mean we get to stop trying to lead. Otherwise, like Mormon said, um, if we should cease to labor, we will be brought under condemnation. So this work that we are doing here... It's about more than just the people that we are trying to serve, more than the people that we are trying to help see the light. It's about us as well. And that's kind of a hard reality to accept for me on occasion that this work is just about, just as much about me as it is about them. But even still, that gives me some hope that I am not as. In as hopeless a situation as mormon was and even still mormon had the courage to continue working mormon saw how hopeless his situation was and he still fulfilled his responsibility because in essence that's what christ would do that is extremely admirable and it is still very hard for me to accept but i respect it and it does the job for me it gives me enough strength to continue uh, having this conversation, to continue doing this work even when it feels hopeless. Even when I write pieces about, you know, advocating for racial separatism <laughs> using the Book of Mormon. Yeah. You I know, still have hope.
1: I'm curious whether love is sort of the secret or the key that underpins the ability to just keep working when it's hard, right? I think that goes back to the central character of someone who's laboring diligently and what keeps them going. I think it is love. Love for God and love for neighbor is what's keeping them going till the very end. Hmm, fair statement. I just wanna add and name, I'm not an expert on this at all, but women are named several places in chapter nine. Oh yeah. And probably the one point in the service of feminism that I might be able to make is, is to just name that the women are named basically just to facilitate the telling of the stories of men, right? Because the whole point of talking about the daughters of the Lamanites who've been violated by the Nephites is to really talk about the wickedness of the Nephites, so I'm, I'm curious as to what needs to change in order to have women's stories stand on their own terms. Like what can we do around listening more to women? What can we do to not take space or take hold of the narrative from women and, and, and basically see, see what that would look like Because so often in the Book of Mormon, women are named, like I said, in the service of telling the story of someone else. And I would love to not see women as as secondary or supporting characters. It's just so easy to do that. Even as a gay man, it's still very easy to listen to what society seems to impose on us, that, that women are somehow accessories to what's going on. Right and rather than being central. Mm. Thank you for bringing that out.
0: All right. If that is all we have for the Come Follow Me, then we'll go ahead and move on to some housekeeping items real quick. Before we do that, Just wanted to remind you guys that Dialogue, A Journal of Mormon Thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50-plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the dialogue lecture series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Derek Buddy, where can people find us?
1: You can find us at beyond dot com, also Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. <laughs> Took you a second there. Yeah. We
0: don't like Twitter very much, but we're we're, we're there too. Yeah. We're there Twitter. too. Yeah, man. Um, Next week is going to be our last come follow me lesson of the year. So Derek and I haven't really talked about how we're going to end this year. But you know, we'll figure that out. We'll let you know as soon as we record this uh, last episode, what the rest of the year is going to look like. But uh, it is our hope that we can keep bringing you some great content as soon as the Doctrine and Covenants unit gets started. We've already seen a couple of things that people are talking about, and uh, we can't wait to discuss them with y'all. Um, don't forget about our glow page as well. You can join our collaborator community. We got some exciting things going on there. Some new things we want to do for the year. Merch might be coming soon. Yeah, it'll be fun. It will be fun. So, um, if y'all got some ideas, feel more than free to, you know, let us know. But if you're already in the collaborator community as result for, uh, a, as a result of, uh, contributing in any way to beyond the block, then you're already involved in that conversation and we encourage you guys to continue participating. If you want to contribute or support the show, go to glow.fm slash beyond the block. That's glow, G-L-O-W dot F-M slash beyond the block. Um, any
1: other announcements we got to put out there, Derek? No, that's it. I, I'm really looking forward to what's going to happen with, when we talk, talk about the Doctrine and Covenants next year. It'll be really cool. I think there's a lot of of fruitful ground that we can cover. Yes.
0: I'm looking forward to that as well. So with that, thank you all for listening till we meet again next week.
1: Bye everyone.